Acts chapter 15. Now, uh, two weeks ago, and I'm doing a kind of little two-part series, looking at the church in Acts, um, and I talked about the vision that Peter had to allow him to go to Cornelius, uh, who was a Gentile, to go to his home, uh, which as a Jew was completely forbidden to walk in the home of a Gentile. But the significance of that moment, that that radically altered and changed the course of, of Christianity for, you know, Christ had come to save not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. To save the Gentiles, you had to go take the gospel to them, which means you're going to have to interact with them. Um, and while Christ had said to go and make disciples of all nations, they hadn't quite done it yet. Uh, while he said, you'll be my witnesses to all the world, they hadn't quite done it yet. And so that vision that Peter had was the beginning point. Now, he was not the guy who would necessarily go and spark all of that work into the Gentile community. That would be Paul. Uh, in chapter 9, Paul comes to faith. He spends a period of time, 14 to 17 years, uh, I guess in many ways you might say preparing for what Christ would have him do. He's brilliant mind. Uh, totally everything we experience today in Western civilization somehow was touched uh, in, in some way by Paul. It's just he's completely in the way he taught. And uh, the, he, he, took the, he took our faith and he gave it a, a, just a doctrinal position that made it easier to understand and was just revolutionary, and he went and dealt with Gentiles. And in the 13th and 14th chapters of Acts, you have Paul and Barnabas. At the time, Barnabas is kind of the lead guy going to the first missionary journey to what we would call Turkey and then Asia Minor, and, and Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. They left from Antioch, which was a Gentile-believing church. And they came back to Antioch at the end of chapter 14, sharing with them all that had gone on and all the conversions, and everyone was excited until we get to chapter 15. It says, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, that is at Antioch, the Jewish, I mean the Gentile believers. This is what they said, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, notice this, you cannot be saved. So here you see is a stipulation placed upon the grace of God. You cannot be saved unless you do something prior to your salvation. Unless you change something about your status prior to that moment. God in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will not, cannot save. Paul has uh, most likely dealt with this already in the book of Galatians. He deals with the book of Galatians. Galatians is probably written prior to Acts 15. Primarily because if Acts 15 had already occurred, which we'll see in a few minutes, Paul would have included it in Galatians most likely. In, in the book of Galatians, some Judaizers, we call these people Judaizers, Judaizers, adding parts of Judaism, the Jewish faith, to Christianity, had gone to one of those places Paul went on that missionary journey. He had gone... They had shared the gospel, and they went to an area known as Galatia. And they began to teach that you had to follow certain Jewish practices. You had to be circumcised, and you had to follow the Jewish uh, ceremonial law and customs, or you could not be saved. So they added to the gospel. Paul wrote a scathing rebuke to the church of Galatia, uh, in which he condemned that, saying that is apostasy, is, is heresy, and that to add anything to the gospel is to take away from the gospel. And so he has dealt with that in that letter to that group. That letter had not yet spread all throughout Christianity yet. 
And so now this issue is arising here at Antioch, where Paul is. And so what's basically being said is that it is not enough for you to follow Christ. You must first become Jewish. Now, they're saying you have to go back to the Old Testament laws. And you have to incorporate the Old Testament laws. They didn't call it the Old Testament. They just called it Scripture. You have to take the covenant God made with Israel and incorporate it into your faith. Now, there's a covenant God made with Abraham that's for all of humanity. The whole world will be blessed to him. But he made a covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, especially for a specific group of people we know as Jews. And they were God's chosen people, chosen so that God may begin his redemptive work through them in order to reach all the world. The goal was always to reach all of mankind, not just a select group of people, but he used that group of people. And he formed a covenant, an agreement with them, and there were certain stipulations they took upon themselves. And they had to do certain things. The reason they had to do certain things was to separate them out from the pagans. Because if they didn't separate themselves out from the pagans, they would become just like the pagans. If you don't believe that, read the book of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. That's exactly what happened. And so they were called to live a holy, set-apart life. And then when Jesus came, Jesus said, all that is in that old covenant, the law, I came to fulfill it. Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 21. I brought it to an end. I did everything that that points to. I brought it to closure. And then he said, and now this is how you live as a follower of me. And he no longer expected Gentile believer, any believer, to live according to the old covenant. Especially Gentile believers who came out of paganism. At no point did Jesus ever expect them to adopt all of the old covenant. Peter didn't expect it. Paul didn't expect it. Nobody who wrote any of the New Testament ever said, you've got to go adopt the old ways and incorporate the Christianity. In fact, they, all those Jewish guys said, you can't do that. You can't ask them to do that. It's not part of it. So here's what it says then, after these guys were saying, you've got to incorporate all this. Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. That is an understatement. And the brothers in Antioch (coughs) determined that Paul and Barnabas, two Jewish believers, and some others should go up to Jerusalem, up means elevation, to the apostles and elders concerning this. They want to get to the bottom of this. Because the people coming, we'll find out later on, said they were coming from the religious leaders. And so they sent them on their way by the church. And as they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, notice what happens. Paul and Barnabas were describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to other brethren. So while one little small group of believers were upset that all the Gentiles were coming to faith and had not converted to Judaism first, other people were just rejoicing that they had come to faith. Here were people who were outside of God's covenant, and now they were inside the covenant through faith in Jesus Christ, and they were overjoyed. They were celebrating as they should. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church. Actually, Jerusalem is kind of like the head church. All the apostles and the elders And they reported all that God had done, notice, with them. All that God had accomplished through Paul and Barnabas. But, there's always a but. But some of the sect of the 
Pharisees who have believed stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to obey the law of Moses. We forget sometimes Pharisees got saved. Paul was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee. Uh, There were other Pharisees who came to faith. But some of those Pharisees just couldn't get away from their old legalistic ways. I mean, they saw Jesus as fulfilling what they had in their scriptures. They saw him as the fulfillment of all the promises God has made. But they couldn't get past their legalistic minds. And so they shackled and cuffed and bound the Gentiles into the same law that they had been a part of that didn't save them, by the way. And so they said it is absolutely necessary for these things to occur. Now, I have been in church uh, since my mom was pregnant. <laughs> I grew up in a Baptist church. You know, before I was born, I was in a Baptist church. And, uh, and I, I still remember uh, in, in, in my mama's belly hearing the hymns of the faith. So people who say that people, uh, that, that the unborn don't know what's going on, I, I remember uh, at South Sand Baptist Church hearing all that stuff. I was kidding, but I don't remember all that. And, and being Baptist is, if you've been Baptist all your life, you know what I mean. There's just certain things about us that are just different and unique. And, and I love being a Baptist. If I wasn't, a, someone said, if you weren't a Baptist, what would you be? I said, I'd just be embarrassed. I don't know what else I would do. I mean, I think being Baptist, being Southern Baptist, is as close to <laughs> what God would expect a group of people to be in terms of faith. I just think that way. It's just who I am. But we've had some really crazy and dumb ideas over the years about what it means. And I've heard some of the dumbest things I think possible come from the mouths of Baptist people. I cannot tell you the number of legalistic, totally heretical things I have heard Baptists say are necessary for a person to be saved. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, they, got, they, they can't, God won't save them until they stop living that way. God won't save them as long as they dress that way. God won't save them as long as they have these bad habits. In other words, so many people, if you want God to save you, you need to get everything together. And I can remember as pastoring, I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, well, those, those, so we don't want those folks in our church. Why? Because they do this and they do that. We don't want them to come here. I'm like, well, they're the ones that need to come here. Why don't they come here and you leave? That's a good strategy. By the way, I still feel that way. I'd rather the lost come here and be welcome than people who call themselves Christians not want them here and drive them away. You leave, and the lost can come. And most of you agree with that. And this was the mindset. They can't come to Christ until certain things happen. So they have this council. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to come out. And this is the great Jerusalem council, the first church council. And Paul didn't speak at all. Because Paul wasn't highly thought of in Jerusalem. Do you realize this is probably about 49 AD, 48, 49. Paul had written Galatians. James, the brother of Jesus, had written his book. Those are probably only two books written. Jews in Jerusalem... And the Christians in Jerusalem who were Jewish, because almost all the Christians in Jerusalem were Jewish, none of them liked Paul. 
the Jewish Christians didn't like Paul because remember, Paul was killing Christians. He started with Christians in Jerusalem. So many of the people in the Jerusalem church had probably had loved ones thrown in jail. Some of them may have been thrown in jail. Some of them may have lost all their property and stuff because of Paul and had loved ones killed. So they might forgive him, but no one in the church wants to listen to Paul. And the Jews who weren't believers considered Paul an absolute traitor. In fact, at the end of the book, it's those people who arrest Paul seeking to kill him. Because Paul had turned his back. So no one's going to listen to Paul. So Peter is going to speak. And this really, for all purposes, is the end of Peter's influence in the book of Acts. Now he has still influential. He has things to go. He has to write 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And by the way, my summer series is on 1 Peter. And at the end of July, the last Friday of July, I'm doing on a Friday night, I'm doing a Bible study on Peter, what we call that the deep fry thing. We're doing that from 630 to 10. But this is Peter in Acts. This is his last kind of hurrah. After much debate, everybody had talked. Peter stood up and said this, Brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, go back to Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles will hear the word of the gospel and believe. So we talked about two weeks. By my mouth, they would hear the gospel. And they would believe. Hear the gospel? Belief. Gospel? Belief. That's it. And God, who knows the heart, not you guys, testify to them, giving them, notice, the Holy Spirit, just as he also did us. So he said, I saw it. I was there. I was there when it happened. In Cornelius' house. He gave them the Holy Spirit. I saw it. We were amazed. We told you that. Just like he had given us. And listen. You know what it means once you have the Holy Spirit? It means you're saved. Now, some of our Pentecostal friends don't seem to understand that. They think you can be saved and not have the Holy, have the Holy Spirit. They're sadly mistaken. They're tragically mistaken. You have got to have the Holy Spirit of God. There's nothing else is ever taught. Here's what he's saying. They got the Holy Spirit. They believed, had the Holy Spirit. What else do you add? See, Here's the thing. In the Old Covenant, circumcision was the mark and the seal of that covenant that said you're of the Jewish faith. You had to be circumcised to be of the Jewish faith. That goes all the way to Abraham. (laughs) I don't hear very well, but I hear that. You had to be circumcised. Unless I could hear Brian singing the other day during church, too. (laughs) You're not doing that much good. You had to be circumcised. In the New Testament, you know what the seal and the mark of your salvation is? It's not baptism. You can be baptized and not be saved. It is the Holy Spirit in your life. Period. It's all that matters. Peter says this. And he made, in verse 9, no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. He didn't make any distinction. He accepted them just as much as he accepted us. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon their neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Now, look what he's saying. You're testing God. You're adding stuff. 
You're making stuff up. How many times have you heard me say, why do we make stuff up? We do. We, you're making stuff up. You're requiring them to do something that we could not do. We tried for 1,500 years, and we couldn't do it. We failed miserably. You know what the book of the Old Testament is really about? I, mean, I, I say it's, got, it's, it's a book of promise. The New Testament is a book of, uh, of, of, of fulfillment. You know what else the Old Testament is? It's a book of failure. Utter, complete, total failure. Failure. We couldn't do it. So why are you trying to make them do it? Verse 11. We believe that we are saved through the grace, not the works, not the law, the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. We're all saved by grace. It says all the people kept silent. And then they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were letting the signs and wonders where God had done through among the Gentiles. So Barnabas and Paul started talking then at that point after Peter about what had happened. Barnabas listed first. So listen to what Peter's saying. Peter is saying, this is, this is the gospel. We are saved by grace. There's nothing we can do. There is nothing in the law. I am amazed to this day how many times I hear people say that connected to the second coming of Christ, you've got to reestablish the Jewish legal system, the Jewish faith. You've got to build the temple back. You've got to have all the sacrifices back. You've got to have all this stuff. And they're saying none of that saves you. None of that worked. Why do people want to build back a system that Scripture says in the New Testament, that Peter says, that Paul says, the author of Hebrews says, never worked? It was a failure. The temple was a failure. The sacrificial system was a failure. It all failed because it never saved. Was it bad? No, it wasn't bad. God gave it. And God gave it, and it pointed out that none of them were saved by it. No one was saved by the Old Testament Jewish system. They were saved by faith. Moses was saved by faith. David was saved by faith. Elijah was saved by faith. They were all saved by faith. And so, why do we add to that? Let me go on. After they stopped speaking, now James speaks. He's the brother of Jesus. Came to faith after the resurrection of Christ. He already wrote a book. He's a published author. Wrote the book of James. There's my water. He is the leader of the actual church. Peter is the leader of the Christian movement. James is the head pastor, the lead pastor, senior pastor. Whatever term they used back then. And he said, brothers, listen to me. Simon, that is Peter, related how God first concerned himself, taking from among the Gentiles the people for his name. And then he quotes from Amos loosely from the Septuagint, the, uh, the Gent, uh, Greek version of the Old Testament. Uh, Amos chapter 9. The words of the prophets agree. After these things I will return, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, I'll rebuild its ruins, I'll restore it, and the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who have called upon my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from long ago. So, the tabernacle of David has fallen, he'll rebuild it. Now, what does that mean? People say, well, he's going to rebuild the temple. That's not what that says. Amos, the temple was built. That was the first temple that was destroyed. Here's the second temple. It exists. People seem to forget the function of the tabernacle. 
and the function later on the temple, but especially the tabernacle. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? And if you answer it was to do the sacrifices, you were incorrect. The purpose of the temple was so that people might, in a visible, symbolic way, see the glory of God. The tabernacle was where, symbolically, God dwelt among his people. Now, God was everywhere I got that. That's what the tabernacle was for. Malachi talks about second temple. Haggai does and Malachi both. I forget who does what. Talk, uh, which one said which. But talks about the, the, the temple uh, being, the temple, that, that second temple being built, which was in shambles, being visited by the glory. God, the Lord would go into the temple. Who was the Lord? It was Jesus. The glory would return. Where was the glory? It was Jesus. Why? Because God didn't go back into that temple. The Holy of Holies, where, it had the, where God was supposed to be, he never went into that second temple. It was just a place where they showed up to do sacrifices. But if you go all the way back to the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of God, that's, where, that's what it was. The tabernacle, the glory of God. Where's the glory of God seen? In Jesus Christ, period. And so the Gentiles can come. Now, verse in verse 19 says this. Critical verse. Therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. NIV in the New Living Translation says this. Do not make it difficult for Gentiles to turn to God. And along with what Peter did when he crossed the threshold into the house of Cornelius, James now does. He radically changes the course of Christianity by saying, don't make it difficult by adding the law. Think about it. What do we do to make it difficult for people to come to Christ? It's already hard for them. You know what you have to do to come to Jesus? You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. You have to renounce your whole way of life. You have to admit that you can't save yourself. They already have to forsake their trust in themselves. And they have to take their life, people have to take their life and everything they've ever believed and thought and radically change it and take their life and give it to Jesus and admit there's nothing they can do. And they do that at the risk of family and friends deserting them. That's what's at stake. It's already somewhat difficult I can't tell you the number of people who said, David, I just can't do it. I don't think I can do that. It's too hard. I don't think I can make that decision. I don't think I can do that. I can't turn my life. It's too hard. And what do we do? Well, let's make it more difficult for them. Let's add some rules and regulations. Let's tell them how they dress. Let's tell them. Not that what they're doing is wrong. It's okay to tell them what they're doing is wrong. They need to know what they're doing is wrong. They need to know what they do displeases God. But let's tell them this. Let's tell them, change that first. You change that. And then you can come to God. I can remember when if a woman wore pants, she couldn't come to church. She had to wear maybe some had to wear a skirt, or she would be talked about in gossip because she was dressed like all of y'all. Now all of y'all were young back then. You were probably the radicals that, that started wearing pants to church. 
You look like a bunch of radicals. I can remember when people who were living in sin weren't allowed in church until they quit living in sin. Why, why would you tell them they can't? I'm not, ask, I understand you don't want them to teach Sunday school. I, I get that part. Drunks. Man, you, you, if someone was an alcoholic. There was a guy. I passed the church. And there was a guy who was drinking. There was a guy who was playing in honky-tonks, right? He's playing in bars. And they kicked him out of the church. So we don't want you to ever come back. Because you play country music in a honky-tonk. Well, that's where all the sinful people were, except when they were in church on Sunday doing that. I can remember that same church. Didn't want Hispanic people coming to church there. That church today, after decades of being small, has had a revitalization revived. And I was talking to someone there about a couple of years ago. What happened? They said all those people finally died. And when they died... We started welcome sinners back to church, and we started reaching them, and our life changed. And they went from running 20 to about 120 in about a year, year and a half. When everybody died. Here's what he says, though. Don't make it difficult, but what we write to them, but that we write to them that they do this. Abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Now, this is silly because we just said we don't want to add any of the Jewish system. And now James is saying these things that kind of are found in the Jewish system. And you go through and you can find this in Leviticus and you find Deuteronomy. We're going to ask him not to do that. And there's a lot of confusion. Some people will tell you, and there's a little bit of truth to this, that because the Jewish believers struggled so much with certain things, that they were asking the Gentiles to kind of compromise their faith, not their faith, but compromise a few things morally. Not, not compromise morally, compromise a few things for the sake of their morality and agree with the Jews so that they wouldn't be involved in idolatry and they wouldn't be involved in, in fornication, which was understandable, but they also wouldn't meet, eat animals that were strangled or cooked in its own blood. And that was to appease the Jewish believers. And I get the essence of unity, but they're missing the point. So here's the thing. Do you know why in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, that those things existed? It was to separate God's people out from the Gentiles, the pagans. So pagans were involved in idolatry. Pagans were involved in fornication, which obviously goes back to Genesis, why they shouldn't do that. I get that. But they strangled. You know, they did certain things to their animals that they cooked. There were certain things that were customary to the pagans. And so God said, I don't want you to do that. I'm separating you out. Don't do those things. Now, man, people say, well, it was for health reasons. Well, okay, fine. It was to separate them from the pagans. Now, in the day that James gives this kind of summation, you know what pagans did at their temple? They would have these temple, they would have what we Baptists would call potluck, except it wasn't sanctified and glorified. It was sinful-fied. It was sinful. And whereas we have potluck, we don't do potluck anymore. I think we're growing up a whole generation of Baptists that don't understand what a potluck is. We're growing up a whole bunch of women that don't know how to cook a casserole <laughs> and don't know how to fry chicken or make seven-layer cake. You know that? We know, I, bet, I, bet you, I, bet you, I bet you most of the people that go to contemporary service cannot make a casserole. And they can't fry chicken. Real chicken, not chicken tin. I mean, the chicken with the bone in it. Can't do that. And I don't know how, how they're going to be Baptists in heaven if you can't do that. 
So pagans would meet and they would have these religious feasts. And they would sacrifice things to their idols, their pagan gods. And they would strangle them and they would cook them in their blood. And then afterwards they would fornicate. And so they're saying, y'all need to separate yourself from the pagans. And that's what that means. And that makes sense. Hey, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to be Jewish. But you sort of need to quit being pagan. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. And that would bring unity in the church, right? You don't, have to, you don't have to stop being pagan before you become a Christian. But once you become a Christian, do this. Quit being a pagan. Okay. For Moses from ancient generations and in every city, those, uh, those who preach them, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And so then he wrote the church at Antioch, all this stuff. And when the church at Antioch got it, verse 30, those, they, were, they were all sent away, a group were sent away, and they went to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of this encouragement. Yes! We're not going to do the pagan stuff anyways. And now we don't have to become Jewish. We just have to follow Christ. Judas and Silas, being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brothers in a lengthy message. <laughs> a lengthy message. I, I, you know, we don't like lengthy messages. They did it all the time back then. And after they spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren and placed to those who had sent them out. Silas stayed. And Barnabas and Paul stayed in Paul and Barnabas. Now Paul is put before Barnabas, stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of God. So here is this critical chapter. Which says this, don't make it difficult for lost people to be saved. In First Baptist Church, has to be diligent and passionate, not only about sharing the gospel and sharing it accurately and correctly, but making sure that we don't make it difficult for people to be saved. And I have to ask myself all the time, in staff, you know, we don't necessarily word it this way. But I look all the time, what do we do that makes it hard for lost people to come to faith in Christ? What barriers do we put up that tells them it's hard and we don't really want you to come until you change some things? And we always have to think about that. We honor God and we, we praise God and we worship God. And there are certain things that are given. Well, obviously, we're never going to change the gospel message. We don't do change the gospel. We're not going to change that. That's, that's not even the issue. But what traditions, what man-made kind of things do we put up there and we include in the gospel? And say, okay, you, you got you to... You got to do this, and then God will accept you. We we have to remove every barrier and obstacle. There's already enough. Jesus is already an obstacle. He's already the barrier. We don't need to add any more. It's one thing to pray for a hedge of protection around your children. But don't pray for a hedge of protection around your church. God's got that covered. No hedges to keep out people. 
I have in my message Sunday, I'm preaching out of 1 Peter, that from too many times what we churches do is we, we, we hide behind the fortress of the church to fight all the enemies of God. God can fight his enemies. We just share the gospel with people. You know where you don't share the gospel? Hiding behind the walls of the church. You tear the walls down. You open the church up, figuratively speaking. And you say, come in. And have enough confidence in God that if we seek to honor him above all, preach Jesus Christ, and stay true to the fundamental teachings, I got that. God can protect everything else. You know what God doesn't need us to do? Defend his church. Now, I know we have a whole thing called apologetics, which is the defense of the faith. I got it. But God, and I know my job as pastor is to, to watch over the church and defend it from things. I got all that. But I'm just saying, God is thoroughly capable of taking care of those things. God would rather have a church that is messy with people attending it who have messy lives, hearing the gospel, and those of us who are followers living the right kind of life, accepting them, loving them, but not accepting their sin and not accepting their lifestyles and saying, this is Jesus. Come meet him. He'll change you. And once they come to Christ, then we can help them clean up the mess. But if you try to clean up the mess before they come to Jesus, they're not going to come to Jesus. So let's don't make it difficult. We are, you know, summer's coming and summer's its own world. Summer comes, you start in June and one day we're going to open the doors of this place and it's going to be August. And we say, the summer went by so fast because we say it every year. And then August is here, and the new church year starts in August or September, whenever, some mythical date. So let's be sure maybe in August, I mean in summer, I mean June, July, August, let's get rid of and move away all the things that make it difficult for people to be saved. Let's get rid of all that. So when September comes, and I preach my September series out of Mark chapter 1 on Jesus, We're ready to receive people, all types of messy people. And we don't do anything that make it difficult for them to be saved. Any comments or questions you may have? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, worship an hour, servant hour, you ask if that's a barrier. What we tell worship an hour, servant hour is, and we have to communicate this clearly, is an entryway for people to find a place to connect in service or whatever. Same thing as connect groups. But we really don't, people who are not followers of Christ, if if you've noticed, we rarely ever try to have them in that worship an hour, servant. They're welcome to. Normally, we, we, do, we schedule worship an hour, serve an hour emphasis, and we try to make it clear. Uh, and maybe we don't do a good job, but we try to, to make it clear that this is a way for people who basically can find entryway into a place of service. Even people who aren't followers can, can serve. 
we try to put them in the parking crew, but that's okay. I'm just kidding. To all the parking lot people, we're just kidding. Uh, most of them are in the band, I think. But, you know, we, we don't want it to be a barrier. So what we have to do then is make sure that we don't present it as a barrier. We really try as much as we can. Uh, we have a lot of people that just show up on Sundays, and that's fine. We just want them to know that their entry points to get further connected. Connect Group's one of them. So if, if we do, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that in, in staff meeting going forward. We'll make sure we're not making that a barrier. Uh, we certainly want to look at that if that's a possibility. But it's not designed to be one. Yeah. But we'll certainly look at it. We look at the, we inv- Listen, we evaluate everything all the time. We are constantly evaluating what we do. And so if you think something needs to be looked at, you let somebody know, and we'll throw it in the evaluation. But every, every you know, VBS is this next week. When it's over, we will tear that thing apart. Not the people who did it, they did a phenomenal job, but we will, we will evaluate every aspect of that. Uh, we do that all the time. So we'll do that as well. It's a good thing. Yeah, we have, to, we have to be careful that things we assume are positive could be a barrier. You have to look at that. Anything else? Well... I'll see you Sunday, I'm pretty sure. Goodbye.